Uh, if we could put up the QR code. Everybody pull out your phone. This is like the only time in church that we're going to tell you to do this. Get the QR code. This is for the future think-togethers. Who knows what think-together is? One person, three people. Okay, so think-together is a time where we as a church tackle hot-button issues. Racism, we've done in the past. Uh, Gender, we've done in the past. Politics, we've done in the past. How does the church respond to these things? What does the Bible have to say about these things? So this has some creative titles for recommendations on future think-togethers, as well as that other line on the bottom. The other line is for your input. If you're like, man, I wish we would talk about this more as a church, speak up. (laughs) If you want something talked about, this is your opportunity to do it. So please, if you have another recommendation, awesome. If you like one of the other three recommendations, like Netflix and chill, that'll get you to visit it. Go to the website, see what it's about. So if you like one of the other recommendations, just pick them. There's no limit. Also go through and tell us your schedule for when you can attend, not just the idea of possibly maybe at a future time and maybe at some other point in the future you'll go when you'll come and attend. Okay, so there's the two announcements. Um, What are we doing and who are we praying for with missions? Jeff. Jeff. Last name? Woodkey, Jeff Woodkey. So we're consistently praying for Jeff and his family, but I'd like to add another piece for praying for Jeff, and that is this gentleman here. It's the gentleman who has Jeff, Iyad Ag Ghali. So we're all going to learn a little Arabic today. You ready? So Mina almost doesn't count. <laughs> He's laughing already. So I want everybody to go, it's up in the throat here, Okay, no, it's not down, up, Okay, but that is not how you say his name. His name is It's down further, so there's and Mina, can you demonstrate, please, those two sounds? He's way better at it than I am. So his name is G-H in, in English letters, so it's low, low down. So... Iyad Ag Ghali. We're going to be praying for this gentleman as well. This, this gentleman is one of the heads of Al-Qaeda in the North Africa division. He's Malian. Uh, he's very political. He makes a lot of really political moves. He's not as fundamentalist as his predecessor, who when his predecessor had Jeff, that was a bad situation because we, people weren't sure if Jeff was even alive. But now this gentleman has Jeff, and he's, he's kind of pretty open about it. Whether he's using him as a pawn, as a piece, to move, who, who knows what's going on. But Iyad Aghali is we're also going to be praying for him. As we pray for Jeff, we're going to be adding this into it, that this man would see Jesus, that he would meet Jesus, and that he would be saved. If you think of Saul, he was one of the best terrorists of all time until Jesus appeared to him, and he wrote half the New Testament. So Jesus can do incredible things in intense people's lives. So we're going to pray for this man as well. Also, we have somebody traveling this week, internationally. So (laughs) Pastor Scott and Joni, stand up for just a sec. They are traveling to Israel. And so we're also going to pray for Pastor Scott and Joni for their travels, that the Lord would speak to them as they're overseas, that he would refresh and fill them. But I did not have this vision, and I like to say if you have the vision, you do it. So Mina is going to pray for Pastor Scott and Joni first, and then I will pray for Jeff and Iag Aghali. I butchered that, but that's okay. So Mina, can you just pray for them first? Thank you. And Lord, we bless our enemy, and we pray for those who are persecuting the church. So Lord, thank you for 
Iyad Ahali, and we pray for his life. We pray that you, Lord, would appear to him in such a mighty way that he would be haunted by the Holy Spirit and know that he has to bend the knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is not just a prophet, but he is Lord and Savior. So, Father, I pray that you would meet this man. I pray that if Jeff has an encounter with this man, that you would give Jeff words of wisdom and knowledge that would speak to his life directly, that nobody else would know these things, and that you would use that to redeem this man's leadership, to redeem his passion, and may he become a servant of you and spread the gospel among North Africa with a radical conversion. And Lord, bless Jeff. Continue to lift him up. Continue to hold him, God, and protect him in the palm of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, we're kind of pumped. Going to be fun. <laughs> Let's turn to Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. We continue our Bible study through the book of Hebrews. And we're at a point here where uh, chapters 3 and 4, there is a consistent theme where the writer is encouraging the church to rest. And uh, let me just say right up front that the rest that he's referring to is the rest that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And, uh, or faith in God through Jesus Christ. Okay, that is the rest that he's referring to. It's, as one man said, just to know that you're loved by God. Back to their old covenant, their Jewish ways, which was not as offensive. And so this man who's writing is encouraging them to press on toward the prize of the high calling that we have in Jesus Christ, not to draw back. Uh, he's very... Uh, personal. He's, he understands their condition. He includes himself in a lot of what he has to say because we all understand the, the temptations and the difficulties outside or inside of us, mostly from inside. So I just want to point out a couple of things that uh, chapters 3 and 4, uh, I want to point out to you that there's kind of a set of bookends, <laughs> if you will, and those bookends are Jesus as our high priest. And the author is going to make much of that as we move into chapter 5 and really through the rest of the book. But let me point out to you, in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore in all things he, God, had to be made like his, or Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then again in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So that's, that's one side of the bookend. And then he doesn't really talk about Jesus in his priestly role and what he's accomplished for us as the mediator of all men, but he reintroduces him again in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that's where we're at. I'd personally just like to see the structure and the way things, uh, the way the writers uh, structure their, their uh, words. And so it was... I appreciated that personally. Hopefully that gives you a sense of where we're at right now. And I'm saying all that because the writer is focusing our attention on the finished work of Jesus in his priestly role. And he's encouraging, as I have already said, these saints to continue in the faith, to persevere. The perseverance of the saints is really what he's preaching here. The readers of this letter started out on their journey of faith as they came to faith in Jesus. They heard the gospel. They repented. The Holy Spirit came into them and filled them and encouraged them, told them that 
They were now sons and daughters of God. They have a personal relationship with him. And there was a lot of excitement and reality in all that, as you and I all know. I hope you know. But they needed help to continue because of the troubles that had taken place in their lives. And I think it was Martin Luther who very appropriately said, God's grace and love is not only the gateway, but the pathway of the Christian life. And so I just pray by God's Spirit that he will enable me to speak so that when I'm done, we will all just see the glory of the Lord and we will love him and cherish him and embrace him as our Savior who is with us and encouraging you to continue on in the faith without compromise. And it's not to say that we don't have doubts. We're full of doubts. But doubts are just questions. And we go to the scriptures and we find answers to those questions. It's very different from unbelief. Unbelief is really a bit of an affront to a sovereign, holy, powerful God. And to have light exposed into our soul and to be aware of his glory, and then to not walk in that light and to trust who he is in unbelief, that's a very dangerous place to be. And so these chapters are filled with warnings and exhortations. The author at this point in chapter 4 has given us a history lesson in that he took us back into the Old Testament and he makes a really strong correlation between the people of the Jewish people who had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt and then were wandering through the wilderness and it was a very dry and, and, and challenging time for them. And so there's a direct correlation between their walk of faith and our walk of faith in that we're all headed in one direction. For them, it was heading to the promised land. And for us, it's heading to heaven. The promised land is heaven. But our access to that promised land is in a person. And so our rest, as we will see in today's text, it's really in God. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The author's given us a history lesson, and now he applies the lesson from history to enter into the rest of God that he's provided for us. He basically is saying, enjoy my rest, participate in it. Participate in the rest of God. I'm so tempted to use a Paul Harvey thing here, and now you know the rest of the story, right? Uh, the rest of God... Uh, I wanted to say it this way, it's, uh, it remains open, okay? And the author teaches us that by preaching to us from the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 95, 7 through 11, and he really hammers on this word today. <laughs> You'll see that uh, portion or that word and that little part of the scriptures even referred to here in our text in chapter 4, but he makes the point that what was true for the people in the wilderness was true for David, who wrote Psalm 95, we learn, that it was true for him. Today, it was a moving target. That the rest of God is, is an open book, okay? And uh, he's going to advance that even further in our text today. Okay? So, rest today. It was true in the day of the people. It was true in, uh, in the wilderness. It was true in David's day. And the author is now advancing it forward a couple of thousand or a thousand years to their day. And he's applying that. And he's saying, today, today is the day to trust in God, to give your life over to Jesus Christ. Uh, and so as we read it, we realize that it's still valid today. Okay? There's always a today. Meaning, deal with your heart now. Deal with your relationship with Jesus Christ today. Where are you in your personal relationship with the Lord? 
How's your relationship with Jesus? Are you, or are you turning, tuning out his voice saying, not today, <laughs> maybe another day. I'll deal with it tomorrow. And we all know tomorrow never comes. Because we put it off today, there's a little bit of a hardening to the truth that we know about the gospel. If we don't respond today and we put it off tomorrow, then the writer is just being very honest to say, tomorrow may not come. Deal with your relationship today. And if we don't, then I think the devil just smiles and giggles and says, <laughs> you're one step closer to hell. Or you're one step closer to just being cut off. There's a reality, a sense of reality and responsibility. So let me just read with you. Uh, I guess we'll just read through the chapter and we'll just hear what the Lord has to say. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, he starts to make application. Again, he's applying the lesson from history, the people who fell short of the promised land through unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he, God, has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Therefore, or There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing, then, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author teaches us a lesson from history. And he makes application from all that he talked about last week in chapter 3, as I mentioned to you already, particularly Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where the people had come right to the edge of the promised land and through unbelief and direct disobedience, willful, consistent disobedience, they fell short of the promised land. And what I see the author doing here is he's making application and he does it with instruction and exhortation, and there's four ways he does it. Verse 1, and you'll notice that he does it, he keeps saying, let us. <laughs> Sorry, I think of the vegetable there. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. Verse 11, let us be diligent. Verse 14, let us hold fast. And verse 16, let us come boldly. So I want to just preach to you this morning... Just the first one. I want to just hang out with you for a little bit and consider, let us fear. That's the exhortation that the... It's, a, it's an action step, all right, that he's exhorting these Christians 
to, I want you to fear. This is a, it's a verb. This is what I want you to do. In light of who you are and in light of God's love for you, that's what he's asking us to do. But since let us fear precedes verse 11, let me just go through these verses 1 through 10 and just draw a little observation, make a couple of points, and then come back to the first action point. You can see that he starts off in verse 1, and he says, therefore, and when you're reading your Bibles, always, and I always repeat this, but pay attention, therefore means application. Something that has been said before is now being applied to our lives. Paul's very good at this in his writings in the epistles. And so the author is saying, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. Verse 2, for indeed the gospel was preached to us. Don't you love how the author puts himself right in the same boat? Let us fear. Been there. I'm with you, brothers and sisters, as you're walking through this life. Let us fear. I need to do this as well, the author is saying. And it's, it's true for all of us. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as it was to them. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith with those who heard it. In other words, good news, truth came to them, perhaps through, if you remember the account from Numbers, Caleb and Joseph, or Joshua, excuse me, right? The 12 spies went in, they all came back from their investigation of the promised land, and they had, they brought the fruit, they bought the giant grapes, and there was a testimony of how wonderful the land was. It's flowing with milk and honey, it's very fruitful and prosperous, but 10 of the spies saw nothing but giants. And they're like, we can't do it. And Caleb and Joshua tore their clothes. They're like, yes, we can. God is great. Put your faith in God. Let's enter into the battle and see him give us victory. And the people refused. In fact, they called for a new leader. They said, Moses, you, you're a jerk. We're, we're out of here. Let's go back to Egypt. So that gospel, that, that good news that was preached to them, in context, it seems like that's what the author is referring to when he talks about the gospel, and gospel means good news, as well as it was to them, but it wasn't mixed with faith when they heard it. They didn't take their, their difficult situation, and they stand right in the threshold. They go, okay, this is challenging. I'm not sure how to take the next step here but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop before I do anything wrong, and I'm just going to pray, okay, Father, I know who you are. There's been much experience with you, and I know what your word says. I know that you rose from the dead, and you gave us victory. You've given me your spirit, and so uh, I'm going to take that step, and I'm going to watch you show up. So it's real time. It's bringing the Lord right into our, our, our situations in life. I call them those Mo the crisis of faith, that's what I call those. And they happen daily, right? Life's hard. Happens daily. And so you get into that crisis of faith where it's like, Lord, can you, will you, are you able? <laughs> that's real. Let us fear. And so we mix it with faith. Not a feeling, but faith. For we, he says, who have entered, who have believed, do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, admittedly, brothers and sisters, I had to wrestle through these verses here. <laughs> this sounds, takes a little decoding almost. Because it doesn't sound, he makes a very positive statement. We've entered into his rest. And then he quotes Psalm 95 and it sounds very negative. It's like, have we entered it or not? I think the emphasis, he's just quoting the verse. And I think the emphasis is, my rest, capital M. My rest. It's God's rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Explanation, verse 4, 4. He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this wise, and God rested on the seventh day 
from all his works. I just want you to take note of that, okay? Because we're going to conclude this sermon kind of right here where we began. And so what the author has done is he's, remember that, as I said, the rest remains open. It's kind of a moving, it just moves with all of mankind. The rest of God is available through faith. And the author just blew that up into, it started at the beginning of time. It started at the beginning of time. He goes back to Genesis 2, verse 2, and he says that God rested on the seventh day. By the way, when you study the creation account, what's the final statement that's made at the end of every day? The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second and the third and the fourth and the sixth day. We get the, verse, uh, the seventh day, And it doesn't say evening or morning. Indicating the rest, really, God began resting on the seventh day and his rest continues. And there's no indication that he ever resumed his creative ability or created work again. And so those couple of factors, the author, who's a brilliant man, I'm just so impressed by this man, just takes hold of that and says, even in the very beginning... God established a rest, which reveals to us, brothers and sisters, that really the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. For the people in the wilderness, it wasn't really the land. It was love for God. It was love for God who would save them and manifested his presence to them supernaturally day after day after day after day after day. And so the rest would come from believing in God, abiding in the relationship that he provided for them. Hopefully that's a little bit clearer to you. It sounds a little odd the way the the wording is here. You know, we've entered in, they shall not enter. Then he goes off into this Genesis account. But I believe that's what he's saying is he's stressing God's rest, which began at creation. Verse 6, therefore, since therefore it remains that some must enter in and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of renewal. Today, God is speaking to you today. He's he's making his offer uh, again, sort of renewing his vows to you, if you will. And then in verse 8, he says, If Joshua, and Joshua was the one who, we have his book called Joshua. He's the one who actually took the people across into the promised land. And he says, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. David followed Joshua by many centuries. Okay? So the point the author is making is he's saying it really wasn't about the promised land. It was about the one who promised the promised land. It was God himself. And it was their relationship and their faith in him. That's where rest is. That's where rest is, brothers and sisters. Our rest is in God. I think it was August, well, I know it was Augustine, who very appropriately said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Thank you, Augustine. That was well said. And these people in their wilderness journey, maybe you in your wilderness journey, we're all on a path. You're feeling like, I don't know if I can really go on any longer. And the author is encouraging. He's saying, no, God's rest began at creation. And he's offering us a participation in his rest. His rest. I'm done working. I'm just here now to enjoy fellowship with you. Rest brings enjoyment of God because 
I have an identity in him. As one man said, are we living for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ? Am I living to get God's smile or am I living because God has smiled on me? No. My rest. There remains, therefore, verse 9, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And that really is the crux of it. Am I trying to do enough to somehow improve my relationship with God, to gain his favor? Hey, look at me. I'm really a good son. How awkward is that? Thankfully, I never had any of that in, in my experience as a parent. Those days are behind me now. But I can tell you, I could tell you a lot of things about Pastor Randy if you really want to know, but I won't. Yeah, I know you do. So we'll have that. We'll have a think together on that one. <laughs> but it would have been really awkward as a parent, right? You, you, you love your children to death. If your kid gets up and he's like, oh, I'm going to do all these things to really impress you, mom and dad, so that you will love me today. Dude, you don't need to. I love you because you're my son. You're my daughter. That's why I love you. God's given you to us for a period of time. This is what the Lord's like. You're my kids. I love you. Stop trying to impress me. Just rest in my love. Rest in the relationship that we have. I know it's hard down there. Been there, done that. I'm a sympathetic high priest. So I just want to camp out with you for a couple of moments on this idea of fear. Because that's what the author says. Of the four times that he says, let us, he says the first one is let us fear. Well, fear has two meanings, as you know. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, it can be a feeling of danger, a feeling of terror. It's healthy <laughs> to have a sense of danger, right? Uh, therefore, in the sense, if it's real and you have a very real sense of, yes, yeah, something's not right here, then you take action to avoid the danger so that you can continue to live. <laughs> fear can also mean a feeling of honor, a sense of reverence. I love that word. I love that word. I pray that word would become common to our vernacular here. A reverence for God, to revere God, to honor Him, to respect Him, and that also is very healthy. And that also comes with action, or it should. And that when we revere God, when we see His glory and His majesty displayed through His Word, then there's a sense of, oh my goodness. Like those wise men came from the East when Jesus was born. Where's He that's king of the Jews. And when they finally saw him, they bowed down. Paul teaches us that when Jesus comes back, it will be compulsory. When Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God. That's reverence. That's just holy fear that is healthy and good and that means then that my life is trustingly and faithfully submitted to him in his goodness, and he will lead me. As I journey through in the, in the, in the array of decisions that we make in life, there's always a today. And the author is saying, today. You don't know that you have tomorrow, as James would say. So today, revere God. 
There's also a healthy aspect here because the author says, lest any of you seem to fall short of it. And so we see the goodness and the severity of God. We are not messing around. I hope we're not messing around, brothers and sisters. And just sort of casual and, 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 and lib about this. No, there's a, there's a severity to God. But let me balance that by saying this. If I am revering Him, that'll take care of the rest. I'm His son. He's not going to cut me off. I can't not be His son. I'm the son of Tom Hathorne. I could change my name, I could change my gender, I could change my address, I could get all kinds of changes. I'm still a son. If you're born of God, then revere the God who has called you to himself. Love him just out of response to his grace and his mercy. Which is exactly where I want to go next. Because sometimes, I'll be honest, I think God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, which I'm going to call the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, right? But I just want to point out a couple of verses to you that, and I think as one man said, you know, the story of God with man, it's really a story of marriage. God wants to have uh, uh, that close of a personal relationship with human beings, with sinners. And it was true in the Old Covenant. And I hope I want to show you, I want to demonstrate that a little bit to you this morning. So, and I'm doing that because it says, indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Now, you and I hear the word gospel and we think, oh yeah, God became a man, Jesus Christ, and we know how to say the rest of the gospel story. Died, rose, ascended, And the result is our bridegroom is establishing for himself a bride, a church. Well, so it is in the Old Covenant. Maybe you didn't know that. But we'll put the verses up on the screen here for your ease of viewing and listening. But let me just show you a couple of verses in Exodus 19. Here's the gospel of the Old Testament. Exodus 19, by the way, God has brought his people to Mount Sinai where he's about to give them the Ten Commandments. But at first he says to them in verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and saying, Thus you shall say, that's a true prophet right there. You tell the people, Mo, what I want them to know. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Personal relationship. I brought you to myself. And if you're familiar just a little bit with some of the Jewish customs of marriage, it was all about the man would go and take to himself his betrothed woman, and the two would become one. And I see very similar language here. I dipped my toes into the river of Nile and I brought you out unto myself. I took you and brought you, sort of aspect here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Doesn't that sound like Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's that, that great gospel call. Come to me. God is desiring a personal relationship. Why? Because that's where rest is. Enjoy my rest. It comes through relationship. I go now to Jeremiah chapter 2. By the way, next week, Pastor Andy will be preaching from Jeremiah as he fills in while we're in Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2. 
Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go, and here's he speaking through a prophet, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. When you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord. What a beautiful verse right there. As he's referring back to the day when Israel's, when they went through the gateway by faith, and now they're on the pathway. And the Lord's referring to that time when they're in that wilderness setting. One of my favorite portions is Ezekiel chapter 16. Part of the reason I'm putting these on the verses, I'm just trying to be efficient. I think for some of us to find Ezekiel might be a challenge. <laughs> Sorry. Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I'm here to give you life. This is a prophecy to the city of Jerusalem, narrowly speaking, but to the Jewish people themselves. I pass by you in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. He goes on, he says, I adorned you with ornaments and bracelets. I put a jewel in your nose. Verse 13, thus you were adorned with gold and silver and clothing was, your clothing was fine linen. And your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Those verses... Brothers and sisters, most agree that when Jesus stood in front of Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again, and Nicodemus starts scratching his head and he says, what are you talking about? And Jesus said, don't you know? You are a teacher of the scriptures. You should know this. Most believe that Jesus is referring Nicodemus back to this portion we just read. I washed you. I anointed you. And you became mine when I passed by you the second time. Love. Covenant. I spread my wing over you. It's really cool. That was just an ancient custom of indicating I want to be in a permanent relationship. This is what Ruth and Boaz did, famously, Ruth chapter 3. Boaz, during the harvest season, Ruth comes along, lays herself down at midnight, took his garment and put it over herself. He's drunk and asleep, to be honest with you. <laughs> he wakes up and he goes, there's a woman at my feet. And then he realizes, she's saying, I would like you to marry me. <laughs> she proposed to him. She's like, do your thing, man. But it was indicated by this wing going over. <laughs> so beautiful. This is our God. Go to Hosea. <laughs> well, you'll see Hosea on the screen right after Daniel. Hosea, the whole story of Hosea is about God's love. And sort of the the main part is in Hosea chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, here's again God speaking through his prophet because he wants his people to know, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. And then in verse 5, it says, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness. They shall fear the Lord. There's our word. They shall revere 
this one who has forgiven them and brought them back into a relationship after a period of backsliding. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So I just wanted to go through that with you briefly and just tell you that the old, co- the old covenant was, was based on a loving relationship with God. Now hear me out. And that relationship was sustained by the Day of Atonement. That relationship with God was sustained, it was maintained by the Day of Atonement when that one man would go into the Holy of Holies on one day as a mediator for all the people and they would experience the forgiveness and a, and a renewal. And it's like, oh, they, they, outside the, the temple, they would confess their sin. That one man would be going in as their representative. And their relationship then was maintained on the Day of Atonement. Old Covenant. New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the relationship with God is initiated on the Day of Atonement. Because our high priest, this is the point the author is trying to make here, has gone in for us, not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood. The priest was the offering. And as a result of his finished work, there's now an appeal that is made to sinners to say, enter into my covenant and experience my rest, which begins with forgiveness and life. I saw you in your blood, and I said, live. That is the consistency of the heart of God throughout the Bible. And that's why I love what this author does here. Because he's writing to Jewish Christians who know this. They lived in the Old Covenant. They went to the temple and all that. But then they realized that, that the temple and, and even its furnishings and, and the whole Day of Atonement, it all was just a picture and a pattern of the true, of the real, of the better covenant. We have a, we have a better high priest and, and they came to faith in that. And so he's just drawing their attention back and he's saying, consider the apostle and high priest of your confession. Keep your eyes situated and fixed on what Jesus has accomplished for us. You know, it occurs to me, by the way, as I was studying this week, I somehow fell into this thinking that was actually very beautiful when I was connecting what the author had said, and he, he, he hearkened back to the seventh day. God finished his work on the sixth day, and then he began his rest, or he began the time of resting on the seventh day, which is eternal. Isn't that fascinating? God finished his work on the sixth day. Sixth day, done. And then rest begins. Do you know why I'm going on like that? Is because Jesus made seven statements while he was hanging on the cross. The sixth statement was, it is finished. I have completed the work of atonement so that people can live. And then the seventh statement, he entered into his rest, Father, Into your hands, I commend my spirit. And by the way, it was the sixth day. The Sabbath was drawing near. And so Jesus, after declaring what he had accomplished, he then rested. And you're being invited today to revere him for that. To honor him. And then we enter into his rest. I don't need to impress God. I can't. And for a long time as a Christian, I tried. Not outwardly, but just have a tendency to 
pat myself on the back for what I thought was a job well done in this area or that. Things that might have been done just privately, some generous charitable thing that I occasionally will do, <laughs> or a phone call or just a reach out to somebody. And you know, it's all, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> when you get all done, it's like, my, you are a fine specimen of a Christian, aren't you? <laughs> the Lord's like, who are you trying to impress? <laughs> I did that through you. Maybe it comes with age. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it just comes from a work of the Spirit in our lives, but we realize He's doing it all. I'm maintaining you in your faith. And I'm doing it through, through your faith. Fear Him, brothers and sisters. Fear Him. And you will enter into His rest. In closing, I would like to go to John chapter 5 with you. So if you just turn in your Bibles there, and we'll read together of a very amazing miracle that Jesus does on the Sabbath. John chapter 5 is that miracle where Jesus healed the man who had been lame for 38 years. He's hanging out by the pool of Bethesda. By the way, we're going to be there <laughs> about a week from today. And it says here in John 5 that after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, notice this, and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. They've never met, ever. Jesus walks into this area where it's just filled with people who are hoping for a healing. And he sees this man, and he knows his life story. And then he said in these famous words, do you want to be made well? Oh my God, I pray you just think about those words. Do you want to be made whole? There's layers to John's gospel. There's that's what, that's which, that which meets us right on the surface. And certainly that's what he's saying to this man. Do you want to walk again? But then you go down deeper, and it's much deeper than that. Do you want to be made whole in your soul? Oh, what a question. Well, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And power came out of the mouth of God and touched that man in his condition. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Um, Alfred Edersheim nailed it. He said, it really probably should say, it really probably shouldn't say, and that day was the Sabbath. It should say, because that day was the Sabbath. Jesus intentionally did this on the Sabbath day. Why? Because in the temple, there's workaholics, perfectionists, who labor hours and hours and hours over words, trying to understand what is work. And the Sabbath had become a burden. The Sabbath wasn't made for man. Is that saying that right? But the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But that's exactly what they turned it around. And so the Lord, because He loves these self-righteous hypocrites, He intentionally does this to a man who is hopeless and impotent. 
fascinating. And so sure enough, the guy gets up and walks around. The Jews said to him, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered him, who made me well? Or he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, well, who is the man who said this to you? Take your up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, healthy, physically. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Can I just paraphrase that and add in a little something? If I'm the man standing here looking at Jesus now, standing <laughs> eye to eye, and Jesus said to me, sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. You know what I'd say? Are you threatening me? And Jesus would say, no, I'm inviting you. What you have experienced in your body, I now want you to experience in your soul. You see, son, I know what got you in that place. Remember? I knew. I know why you ended up there. You couldn't see the consequences. Sin was really pleasurable. Ultimately, it left you powerless. And now I'm saying to you, continue in faith in the one who has demonstrated godly power, supernatural power. Fear me. Honor me with your life. This is a gateway, sir, and this is a pathway. I want you to walk in this. <laughs> the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered and said to them, My father has been working until now. Interesting. Wait a minute, I thought you started resting at day seven. He did. He ceased from creating. But now ever since then, God's been in the activity, the work of calling, inviting people to himself to believe I'm a good God. You can trust me with all your life. Fear me, brothers and sisters. My father's been working, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said God was his father, making himself equal with God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Sometimes we learn a lot from our enemies. He's God. You can't say that. Verse 22 and 23, the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son. That all should honor the son, there it is, honor the son, just as they honor the father. That is, fear the son as they fear the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So the author's words to us today, brothers and sisters, if I can just one last time just state it, let us fear. This is the action step. Get your eyes off your circumstances and fix them on Jesus. Don't care how difficult it is. Let us fear. Let us have respect and honor to the one to whom all things are possible. His timing, not ours. His timing, not ours. He might allow us to go many years in the wilderness before he shows up and brings some sense of relief. But our peace, our love for him is not determined on the circumstances. Enter into my rest. I'm with you in this, just as we're all in this together. Enter into my rest. Keep your faith and your hope in the finished work of Jesus, our high priest. That's where the joy is. So in closing, I just want to give you a memory verse. I'll put it on the screen here, but it's Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. And I asked the guys to put it up there in the King James Version because that's the way I memorized it. And I think it's beautiful in its language. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, 
because he trusts in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Put it on your refrigerator. <laughs> Write it on a card. Underline it. Memorize it. I think that's part of our fearing. That is part of the action steps that the author is encouraging us in. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusts in thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Let's stand and pray. Be glorified, Lord, through your church. I pray, Lord, that the light that you have given us would manifest more brightly in this dark world as we simply walk by faith not by sight, as we keep our eyes fixed on the invisible, but true. Thank you, Lord, that you inhabit us by your Spirit, that we are bound to you now in a holy covenant and that death won't even part us. You've conquered everything that keeps us apart and stumbles us along the way. You've given us your power, your life, your victory. Lord, I pray that we will honor you and revere you daily while it is called today. I pray, Lord, no one would harden their heart, but there would be a repentance and just a simple faith. I love your words, Lord, to the church in Philadelphia. You had a little faith. That's all it takes. Be glorified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your fellowship together. <laughs>